0: (laughs) The Bible reading today will be taken from 1 Samuel 31, verse 1 to 13, from the NIV. 1 Samuel 31, verse 1 to 13. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Geboah. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows would come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days.
1: Just you stand with me, please? I want you to go shake the hands of seven people. You have to move. Don't just stand still. One.
2: Two noises, Not enough. Three, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Four, good morning. Mm-hmm. How are you? Five. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. Six.
1: Seven. Righto, you can be seated. Oh, you haven't done it? Keep going, you got to get to seven. Who was shallow enough to be counting off as you shook hands? Besides me. Who met somebody new they haven't met before? Oh, very good. What, each other, I suppose. Um, a couple of things to announce. This week has been declared a week of prayer, a call to prayer for families in Australia, for the marriages, to pray for our families, marriages and for the parliamentarians. started yesterday, the 15th, goes until Friday the 21st. So you'll get more information of that in our prayer and prose notes sent out tomorrow, but we'll pray for that in just a moment. Uh, many of you will know Gary Chadasko, Gary and Val. Gary has just received diagnosis that he has cancer. Um, and he was in hospital yesterday, Sunnybank Private, because of pain that he was having. So I'll go and see him. I don't have any more details than that except to encourage you as his brothers and sisters to pray for him, Val, his wife, for Matthew, his son, and Elisa, and she's expecting, and Nola Hodgson, of course, um, Val's son in the situation. They're going to be on a bit of a journey as uh, they work this through together Uh, and then also just to inform you that Rhonda and I are going away on holidays this coming Friday so pray for us we're going across to the other side of the country to Western Australia we've never been there before we've heard two reports one it's fantastic and two there's nothing there (laughs) (coughs) maybe that's a combination of it's fantastic because there's nothing there well we're going down to the Margaret River is it? There's a resort or something down there. so
2: um,
1: We were going to go to New Zealand but that sort of fell through and so I said, what else have you got? And they said, we've got something in Western Australia Maga River." I said, that'll do. So we're going there. So we we have a, one of, on our bucket list is to visit all of the capital cities in Australia. So we'll tick another one off as we go. I think we only have Darwin to go, is that correct? and Hobart for me but you've been there so anyway pray for Rhonda particularly as she's away with me for a full week in WA <clears throat> pray that she'll be well that she'll behave
2: there's
1: <laughs> no good praying that for me just pray it for Rhonda <laughs> and Sister Gian is uh, no she was here there she is no you're not her <laughs> she was sitting here she's gone I did a baptism between services today. Jian um, is her name and she's a scholar from China. She's going back to China on Tuesday week and came to faith in the Lord Jesus. And So I got to baptise her in the pool this morning down there. Uh, which reminds me, there's a baptismal class. I think it's on this afternoon. David's running that. So if you haven't been baptised, you want to be considered. There are two. Thank you. Thank um, you. At two
2: o'clock.
1: <laughs> Sorry. At two o'clock at Hope House this afternoon, there was a baptismal class. <laughs>
2: That's
1: all you got, eh? Um, so if you haven't been baptized before, it's an if you. Certainly, to study the scriptures together and ask any questions you like. It's non-obligatory. You don't have to get baptized at the end of that. But of course, that would be the hope that you'll come to that point of obedience and acceptance. So that was lovely uh, baptizing Jian. The water was not cold, but it was certainly cool. Um, Where after a minute you were there, it was okay because everything had gone numb. (laughs) So that was fine. But that was a highlight. I've never done that before. Done this morning service 8.30 and then baptism and then back again to do the second service. Um, It's a bit of a full day. So we're going to pray for those matters and then we're going to jump into this passage of scripture. Let's pray together. Barbara. 6th of October. Okay, great. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have because of your Son, the Lord Jesus, by his death, resurrection, ascension, session to your right hand. He now makes us welcome, so that we are accepted in Him. And it's delightful to be able to relate to you as our Father. Lord, you've heard all of the conversations we've had this morning, and we want to bring before you our brother Gary. And ask for your healing hand on his life. We pray that you'll give Val and Matt, Alyssa and Nola extra portions of grace and peace, and that they'll have strong trust that you're the God, the powerful God, who is in control. May Gary be aware of your presence, and we pray for relief from pain and healing in his body. Your will, Lord, to be done. Likewise, Lord, we pray for marriages in our nation as this is a week where we are called to focus upon that and we ask for parliamentarians that you'll give them courage and wisdom to make the right call according to your word. We pray you'll strengthen marriages so many, Father, just falling apart, dissolving. We pray that you will help us as a nation to be aligned more with your word and your purposes is that we might continue not just to prosper physically but that we might prosper spiritually under your blessing. So we pray for our Prime Minister, for our Premier and for the Mayor of our city and pray that you'll give them courage of convictions and insight and wisdom to make decisions not according to their own faction groups or to those who uh, lobby them but rather that they'll make decisions according to that which is right in your sight. Thank you for Aaron and Andrea and pray, Lord, for your blessing on them as they come soon to be married. We commit them and indeed all marriages to you, the Christian, that they might be godly marriages. Help us to be good examples at home, that the next generation growing up might be followers passionately of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to gather together here this morning, to have the privilege of singing and encouraging one another, of supporting one another, of uh, reading your word and learning from it together, that we might align our lives with your will, your purposes. So Lord, through this, these couple of chapters, we pray that you will speak to us, challenge us, stretch us, shape us, and just remind us of what you desire for us that regardless of life's circumstances, you are the God who is on the throne and your will will be done. So, Father, glorify and honour Jesus, we pray in his name. And everybody said, Amen. The slides will appear, and I want to sort of, this morning, read the scriptures as well as address stuff on the slide. So the first slide will come up, and it's a picture, I've called this message, Saul's Bad Ending. See, there is a spear that Saul couldn't throw and there is the sword with blood all over it. And that's because, as we read this morning, it's the sword that he falls upon and it takes his own life. Obviously those implements, those weapons are not in proportion. Otherwise that would explain why Saul couldn't throw the spear because it looks like it's completely out of shape. It's not like a toothpick. Um, It's not how you start, it's how you finish that's important. Is that correct? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Some of you would have heard me tell this story before. When I was in high school, last century, most of you were in high school last century, not all, in Year 7, New South Wales, Year 7 is the first year in high school in New South Wales. So in Year 7, beginning of the year, we had a swimming carnival. And I'm not a good swimmer, which is ironic that I'm a Baptist pastor, but anyway. For some reason that year, I don't know what possessed me, but I lined up with for the swimming carnival, I put myself in a swimming event, a race. And the had a pretty significant size swimming pool, still does, Lake Talbot, and Uh, It must have been uh, 50 metres across. So back in those days, just school kids, we just had the 50 metre race. I couldn't swim out of sight in a dark night, I don't think. But on this day, we stood, and I'm lined up, Year 7, first year in high school, hundreds of kids in high school on the banks opposite us, all these first year, Year 7 kids. We enter the race, I'm in about the middle of the pool, middle of the race, and the gun goes and we dive in. And I swam as fast, as I possibly could. And after a while, I thought, I've got to be getting near the end. So I looked up. And I reckon I was about halfway. And then I looked across to my right, to my left, and there was nobody there. I was in front. So off I went again. But I was tiring. I'd spent all my energy in the front half. So everybody else passed me, they got out of the pool and then I arrived. I was embarrassingly last by a significant margin. It's not how you begin, it's how you end that's important. Well, that could be written as the epitaph over Saul's life. He begins well, but he ends badly. The Apostle Paul has it the other way around. Messes it up at the front, gets it right through being converted and then follows Jesus passionately to the end. If you can get to the end and saying, I have fought the good fight. I've run the race. Now henceforth has laid up for me the crown of righteousness. I've endured. It's not how you begin. It's how you end. Well, how did Saul begin? Well, he began well. He was chosen by God to be God's king. He was the King of Israel. He was a humble individual, chapter 9. Chapter 10 tells us that he was changed by the Spirit of God. In fact, he was given a new heart, verse 9. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit powerfully so that he prophesied. The people were amazed at the transformation that happened in his life. Uh, in chapter 10, uh, he refuses to exalt himself. So is God-focused, God-honouring. Uh, He leads chapter 11, a uh, victorious assault against the Ammonites and delivers Jabesh Gilead from their oppression. Does so in very dramatic terms, again, under the anointing of God's spirit. People who had said, who is this man? We don't want him to be our king. and Somebody said after this incredible victory, let's get rid of them. He intervened and said, refusing to take vengeance against those who were opposing him and saying all sorts of things about him. He's it's, it's commendable. He was used by God after that event to reaffirm uh, the covenant that the whole nation recommitted themselves to Yahweh, to the Lord, and to following him. So here is a king chosen by God, changed by God, used by God to bring blessings to God's people and to bring glory to God's own name. He began well and he reigned for about 40 years. And somewhere in this 40-year journey, we're not told exactly where, he begins to slip, just to slide. And it becomes, from this point on, a perpetual downhill journey, which climaxes in the chapters we have before us this morning. Just to remind you, in chapter 13, this is that sad story where Samuel said, go to Gilgal and wait seven days. And he does. And he's got an army of about 6,000. Remember this story? And then after a... A few days, half a week, some of them start to leave. By day six, a lot of them have gone. He's into the seventh day. He had to wait seven days. He's into the seventh day. We don't know how far, but let's say halfway through that day. And he finally steps in. He disobeys. He places himself in the shoes of Samuel. He does what Samuel was supposed to do. And as soon as he's finished offering the sacrifice, Samuel walks around the corner. Catches him in the act of disobedience. To us when you read it you might think well it's just a little thing but it was rather significant and Samuel tells him accordingly that because he has been disobedient there's going to be a change in the future. Chapter 14 that's followed where again just a little slip down he seems to be driven by his own zeal, his own ego and he even threatens to kill his own son Jonathan chapter 14. Remember where Jonathan scoops up some honey and is revigorated and Saul says let's find out who did that and who broke the curse and let's kill him. turns out to be Jonathan. And he's prepared to follow it through. It's only the people who intervene and save Jonathan's life. And then chapter 15, 13, 14, 15, is where he is disobedient to God's clear instructions to destroy all of the Amalekites. And he doesn't. He destroys most of them, keeps the best animals and the king, and he brings them back. And Saul, Samuel, rebukes him that you have not obeyed the commands of the Lord yes I have no you haven't well it was the people and that's what Saul does in these three chapters he blames others you never read of him being repentant or remorseful he never owns up he's never broken by his own sinfulness he's more concerned about the public image and playing the game he's the king has the name for being a God follower and he is a believer but he is slipping, sliding and into increasing persistent disobedience. And then through God's providence David ends up in the palace and David and Saul have a beginning, a great relationship but eventually Saul, Saul becomes very jealous of David and of course several times tries to kill him, throwing a spear at him and, and so on. Um, the Bible talks about him having an evil spirit come upon him, and whether it's he's demonised or whether that's a Old Testament way in this instance talking about some sort of psychotic, psychological disturbance or a combination of both of those sorts of things uh, commentators are divided the reality is something was going wrong in Saul's life he's a complex character who began well uh, but slipped and never makes it back he just continues to drift off course he doesn't get as bad as Solomon who through his marriages went and worshipped foreign gods doesn't go that far. He's a believer who, even in the midst of his disobedience, still acknowledges the reality of the Lord. But it's his own pride, more often than not, that is fueling this disobedience. He won't humble himself, sadly, like he did in the beginning. And this slip-sliding away is in progressive stages until it climaxes, I said, here. In the first phase, it's a mild-mannered type thing. There is a blend of he is normal, and he is raging. It's when the evil spirit comes upon him and leaves him when David plays. It's in that sort of phase and state. I think he was going through that phase because the New Testament certainly alludes to this experience or to this type of experience when it says that if we as followers of the Lord Jesus have bitterness in our hearts, unforgiveness towards a brother or a sister, then God will hand us over to the tormentors. The tormentors the context Matthew 18 they seem to be spirits demons and that's with a view to repentance so I assume that's what this was for Saul intended to bring him to repentance but he doesn't make it back then it gets a bit more intense becomes more irrational becomes more destructive it's where he throws the spirit David three times it's where he sets up his own daughters and um He's using them to achieve his own means and ends. He's prepared to not only kill David, but he's also prepared to kill Jonathan, his son. He's far more destructive. And he's now in this phase the one who's carrying the spear with him all the time. Whenever you read about Saul, he's got a spear. It's either with him in the palace as he's walking around. It's with him under the tamarisk tree when he's sitting down. It's with him when he's asleep. It's stuck in the ground at his head. He's got the spear with him all the time. He's highly insecure, it would appear. He seems to be by himself and he's there to defend himself. Until finally, this story, this sad decline, climaxes for us in chapter 28. If you've got your Bible, there are four paragraphs in 28 and we'll just look at a slide and a paragraph as we work our way through this. That's a disturbing chapter. So Matthew, uh, 1 Samuel 28, verse 3, reminds us that Samuel had died... And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. That's important for us to be reminded of. And Saul had done a commendable thing. He put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. All of the magicians and people who consulted the dead. He's removed them. He's made it illegal. It's commendable because that's exactly what God said to do. Leviticus, Deuteronomy is to remove them from the land. And he had... When he did that in his 40-year reign, we're not told, but he had done it and it was commendable and now he's going to regret that decision. Verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem and Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. Now Shunem and Gilboa are up north. Normally the Philistines have come across the south where they kept getting defeated and repelled. Now they've gone about another 30, 40 kilometres further north into the valley of Jezreel, the beginning of it, where it's a flatter plain, where their chariots will have far more significance. And Shunem is on the northern side of that. Gilboa is on the southern side of that. Philistines are here, in the north. Saul and his army, Gilboa, just to the south, across the valley floor, waiting. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. This is a the end of the 40-year reign. When Saul inquired of the Lord, what should I do? The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Saul is asking God, what should I do? Silence. Silence from God because there was nothing more to say. God had already told him very clearly what was going to happen through the prophet Samuel when Samuel was alive. And Saul, back in chapter 22 and 23, had killed all the priests at Nob. So now either he has reinvented the Ephod and the Urim and Thummim because Abiathar has gone to David's side and he's taken it with him. Here is Saul now without anybody to talk to. So he regrets his previous decision. And verse seven, he says to his servants, "Seek out for me a woman who is a medium." that I may go to her and inquire of her. Slip, sliding away. Now the climax. He's now gone to the occult. He's now gone over to that which God has clearly indicated he is not to do. And surprisingly, though vaguely, his servants reply to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. I'm not sure how you read it. Does that mean... Saul says go find this medium for me and they say, well actually there's one at Endor is it like an immediate response or is it go find this medium for me and they go off, research and come back and then tell him well it could be read either way nonetheless Saul is informed where is Endor? Well note this this will give you an insight into the desperation of Saul the Philistines are at Shunem the Israelites are at Gilboa and Endor is just to the north of Shunem. For him to go to Endor, he has to go beyond the Philistine lines to get to her. And he goes. That's how desperate he is. He's at a complete loss. What should I do? Well, it's pretty obvious he's got to attack the Philistines. But will he win? How should he do it? He's at a loss and he is distressed and he is worried. So, in our first slide, if you can flip between the sides... The Philistines have invaded to the north. The Lord is silent and Saul is desperate. This is coming towards the end of his life. Well, let's go on to the next slide where Saul talks to the medium and it's where he disguises himself and I am just left with questions. I could have guesses but I don't have answers. So let's read that bit, verse 8 and following. So Saul disguised himself, having been informed of the witch at Endor, the medium at Endor, and put on other garments and he went, he and two of the men with him. They came to the woman by night. Now Saul disguised himself primarily, I think, to protect himself from the Philistines in case he got seen. But perhaps also to disguise himself from the medium because he was the king who had removed them and so if she knew that he was the king, there's no way that she would entertain or engage in what he wanted, wouldn't comply with his requests. So he disguises himself and he sensibly does it at night. When he arrives, however many miles that was, maybe an hour, a couple of hours later, he says to her, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I ask or name, you, name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for me to bring my life to death? She suspects entrapment. Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. That's a sad comment. Here is the king of Israel, in God's name, saying to a medium, that God will not punish you when you disobey his law. That's what he's saying to her. And I promise that I won't do what the king had outlawed, had decreed was wrong. You're now free of all punishment. Well, she is appeased by that, verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, scared the hell out of her and the woman said to Saul why have you deceived me you are Saul the king said to her don't be afraid what do you see now before we go any further I want you to notice something and maybe to ask some questions associated with this but I particularly want you to note Saul asked the question can you bring up for me Samuel Now she obviously either thinks she can or pretends that she can. The Bible doesn't actually tell us or say to us that she did anything. Verse 11, whom do you want? I want Samuel. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel. My understanding of this passage is she saw Samuel. This is Samuel. This is Samuel, the one who had died, who was in Sheol in the grave, who has come back to appear. This is not, in my view, a demonic manifestation or a demonic apparition or a pretending to be Samuel. It's Samuel. Because I think that's how the text reads it. When the woman saw Samuel, and the author goes on to say, verse 15, Samuel said to Saul. I think it is Samuel. Are there any other biblical instances where somebody from the dead speaks to somebody who is living? Terry? Lazarus? Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration? Makes me want to ask some questions. Can mediums and spiritists contact the dead? Can they listen to them? Can they see them? You seen that show on T V, the cop show, where they can't solve a murder or something and they go and contact a psychic or a spiritist and they through means and measures find out and give clues? Is that real? Or is that demonic deception? I don't know. I do know this. That this passage cannot be used to endorse that. God has outlawed it. God has said don't do it, that He is the source of revelation and that we are to seek it from nowhere else. This is clearly wrong. But the passage also doesn't say to us that she actually did it. I think God did it. My guess is these spirits and mediums and necromancers cannot do what they say they can do. Only God can. And for some reason on this occasion God allows Samuel who is asleep in Sheol or resting because he says, why did you disturb me? As we'll come to in a moment. And Samuel is summoned. Here he is resting in Sheol and suddenly over the PA system through the corridors of Sheol comes his name. Samuel, you're being summoned. And so he arrives. Of course we're not told any of that. We don't know how it happened. But when this woman, verse 12, sees Samuel, she's scared. This is not what she expected. So she's shocked, which I think reinforces my understanding, my view that it really was Samuel. Samuel. And God did it, not her. And then she not only has this reali- uh, recognition of Samuel, but she also has then a realisation, a revelation, and this is Saul. Saul can't see anything at this point. She says, the king said to her, don't be afraid, what do you see? So he hasn't seen Samuel yet. Don't know what the circumstances are. And the woman says to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. That's the Hebrew. I, I see... A person of dignity, like a judge or a person of great worth and authority. The word means all of those things. Elohim. I see a God coming up out of the earth I'm from the underworld and what does he look like? He's an old man coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. It has all the markings and symbols of human frailty but it's that mention of the robe which gives Saul this like intuition of saying it's Samuel. Remember he reached out and broke Samuel's Samuel's robe and so on Saul knew it was Samuel he goes down on his knees bows before him and pays him homage then the Bible says well verse 15 then Samuel said to Saul why have you disturbed me by bringing me up Saul said I'm in great distress the Philistines are attacking God has turned away from me doesn't answer me anymore, neither by dreams or prophets. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I should do. He's like a little schoolboy who's been caught out. I know it's against the rules, but I had to call somebody. I called you. Which is, again, a bit strange because Saul never listened to Samuel. But there was some relationship. It was Samuel who anointed him, it was Samuel who was instrumental in picking him, it was Samuel who spoke God's word to him, who protected him in the early days. There was a relationship of some sort that Saul perhaps now is pining for or wanting back. And Samuel says to him, verse 16, Then why did you ask me, if the Lord has turned away from you, why are you talking to me? I'm the Lord's prophet. I speak His word and if he's not talking to you, it's pretty pointless talking to me. Now what Samuel I think is alluding to is saying, You should be seeking God, not me. You should be turning your face to God, you should be repenting, you should be humbling yourself before him. We can make the same mistake. God works in our life, and we don't go to God, we go to the Lord's servants, or we go to people or other resources. And sadly, verse 16 says, the Lord has become your enemy. Philistines aren't your problem, Saul. The Lord is, because of your choices. So the Lord has done for you just like he spoke by me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, given it to your neighbour David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. That's why. Therefore the Lord has carried out that thing. It's what he said, that's what he's doing. And he hasn't changed. And you can't change it. Moreover, the Lord will not only give you into the hands of the Philistines, but all Israel, all of Israel's army will. That's at the end. Forty years of reigning and now great disaster. And more so, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Now, if the Lord had communicated through this rather extraordinary event, however he communicated it to you, that tomorrow you die, what response would you make? Let me put it to you another way. Imagine somehow I came to the realisation and I could tell you on great authority that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Now imagine that's true, that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. What would you do today? Uh, repent, get your life in order, make those phone calls, have those conversations, get everything fixed up, wouldn't you? No? You wicked lot. Well Saul doesn't do any of that. Saul hears this and his response to it is nothing. He's appalled, he's shocked, but he's not changed by it. He simply returns to the army and he is then in for the battle. It's a sad ending to a man who started so well. I guess there are lots of questions that come out of that as well. Um... But the primary point is that this is all happening because Saul did not obey the voice of the Lord. Well, let's flip over to the end. It's like there are a couple of other chapters, um, 29 and 30, which is all about David and now the author brings us back. And when we come back to this scene, like if you're watching a movie or TV or something, you watch this scene with Saul and the medium of Endor and Samuel and all of that and then there's a cut in the scene and you've suddenly got the story of David. And now when we return to this story of Saul, he's already in the middle of a battle. The battle has started, 31 verse 1. The Philistines were fighting against Israel and Israel is being beaten. The Israelites are running away. The archers are shooting their arrows and some of them have hit Saul and struck him. Saul's sons are already dead in verse 2. As the battle gets worse and the Philistines press against Saul particularly, Saul says in verse 4 to his armor bearer, Draw out your sword and thrust me with it. Because I don't want these uncircumcised people to come and to mistreat me, like they did with you know, uh, Samson. They captured him alive and then they mocked him and used him like a donkey or something for years. I don't want that. End my life. And the servant, the armour bearer, you're the Lord's anointed, and he was fearful. I'm not doing that. I'm not killing you. So then Saul took out his own sword and turns it in such a way and he falls on it. Commits suicide takes his own life and when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead he did the same thing, he fell upon his own sword and died so now note these things, next slide God kept his word, verses 6 and 7 thus Saul died, his three sons died, his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together, just like Samuel had said the day before this time tomorrow you will be with me And back in earlier chapters in Samuel, Samuel had predicted that this would happen. God's word comes to pass. His words of judgment, most definitely. But encouragingly, also his words of promise. And sadly, verse 7, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and their cities and they fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Up north, the Philistines have attacked to the south, have won in the Valley of Jezreel, and then they just keep moving east towards the Jordan. And they go on to the other side of the Jordan. And the Israelites are running away. And the Philistines come and occupy those cities, those towns. Effectively, the Philistines have divided north and south, divided the forces of Israel. There was a great humiliation and great disgrace. The next slide, because of Saul's disobedience and this great defeat, there was great dishonour to the name of God. The next day when the Philistines came to Strip the Slain, they found Saul, his three sons. They cut off his head, stripped him of his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and their people. Saul is dead. Yahweh, their God, is a loser. And our gods, the gods of the Philistines are victorious. That's what they're proclaiming. Great dishonour to the name of God because of Saul's disobedience. But it's Friday. Looks bleak. The Lord still has his purposes and he's still on the throne and he's still working it out. And then the story ends with this lovely note of gratitude from a group of people. It says they put his armour in the temple of the Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. That's up here to the north and across the Jordan. They've got his body and Jonathan the son's nailed to a wall, his headless body. The people of um, Jabesh-Gilead, refer back to chapter 11, Saul had defeated their oppressors, their enemies. He brought them victory, delivered them. When that town heard the Philistines said what they'd done to Saul, all the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead went at night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall, They came back to Jabesh. They then cremated them, removed the flesh and so on, took the bones carefully and buried them, it says in verse 13, under a tamarisk tree, just like Saul would have wanted in Jabesh. And then they fasted for seven days. Saul dies, not as an apostate, but as disobedient. He fell through pride, the pride of being the king. began so well and then just got off course, didn't listen to God, compromised a little bit, started doing things his own way, ended up becoming egotistical and oppressed by some sort of evil spirit. He was a believer who lost his way, got off course, and regardless of God's privileges or benefits he gave him along the way, he never came back on course. I think he'll be in heaven, but he's going to be like a believer whose works are going to be burned up. The book of Samuel teaches us, and I'm finishing with this, that God's kingdom was advancing, but it's grinding forward. It wasn't advancing. It was two steps forward one step back. One to the right and then back on course again. One disappointment after another. There is judgment on the godly leadership with Eli and his sons. There is the rejection of the prophetic leadership in rejecting Samuel, chapter 8 and 12. And now with Saul, there is this just disintegration of the royal leadership. It was all just going from bad to worse. One failure after another. Yet, God is still on the throne. It doesn't look good, but we already know about another anointed one, David, who is coming, God's chosen, whom he will use to bring out of the scattered sheep of Israel. doesn't look good now but remember chapter 16, verse 7? Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. Things might look bad outwardly. We might think our government and our politicians are going to make decisions which are not godly and which are not right. It looks bad. And God's still on the throne. Look to him. Don't take your eyes off him. Speak to him. Pray to him. Ask him to intervene and to change wicked hearts to righteousness. And this is my last bit. The book of Samuel when you look at it holistically the whole lot it begins with God who is on the throne wanting to speak to his people and he does so through a prophet Samuel God speaking his word to his people and Samuel listening. The book of Samuel ends with God's king not listening to the God who wants to speak and does things his way and ends in disaster who ends badly choice is ours. Are we going to be like Samuel, people who will listen to God and do his will, or like Saul? Compromise, modify, tone it down, blame others, but not take God's word seriously. That's the choice, I think, that Saul reminds us and brings us to. Let me lead you in a prayer. Let's pray. Father, we... I'm grateful that you are a God who communicates, a God who has spoken, and we have your word. It's a great privilege, Lord. Help us not to take it for granted, nor to neglect it. But help us, like Samuel, to make the choices to listen and to obey. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Deliver us, Lord, from the attitudes like Saul, a person who believed in you, a person who was chosen by you and used by you, but someone who was increasingly negligent, disobedient, doing things his way, and in the end brings great disgrace, dishonour to you and to the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, forgive us, deliver us, and be pleased to use us to bring honour and glory to Jesus. We pray in his name.
2: Amen.